0: So today I want to talk about kind of two different options that are available to us in our human life. Obviously there's more than that, but this is one way of thinking about it that helps us maybe get a sense of practice. The Buddha pointed out that uh, one of the most fundamental experiences that we have as human beings is that of what he called Dukkha, or sometimes translated as suffering, but also just as unsatisfactoriness or um, a sense of uh, lack or inadequacy in some way. and. This is uh, kind of built in to being a human, is that there's experiences that aren't so um, agreeable. Sometimes they're distracting, like a (laughs) cell phone going off in the background. Mm -hmm. Kind of nice, kind of nice music on there, actually. Yeah. So I assume it'll stop. There will be cessation at some point. So, um, so suffering. So we're met with um, experiences that are not so easy. And then there's different ways that we can respond to that. All right, thank you. So there are different ways to meet with our very human life. And one of them is that we meet suffering with what the Buddha called ignorance. Uh, And that doesn't mean ignorance like we're too stupid to figure it out. It's ignorance like we try to ignore it somehow, (laughs) ignoring. And so we ignore the fact that there is the suffering in the first place. We ignore that there's any possibility that it might end. We ignore putting in place the conditions that will help us um, deal with it in some way. And so instead we try something else. And uh, it's not... Yeah, it's, it's, this is, we've seen this in ourselves, right? That we've done things that ended up making our lives worse or making our suffering more entangled in some way. And this involves a series of steps. The Buddha actually gives a sequence that the mind goes through in order to uh, bring itself to suffering, essentially. And... I won't go through all of them, but we can just say broadly that if we meet life with a lack of understanding that there's a possibility we don't have to suffer, um, then we have we adopt the wrong approach, basically. and so we um, we may believe, for example, that uh, sense pleasures, having comforts, and nice things in our life is a guarantee of happiness. It's not that there aren't nice things in life or things that we enjoy, obviously there are, and it's not that we shouldn't try to make ourselves comfortable, Um, but if that's the only thing that we do, uh, probably that's not actually going to lead us, in fact that's not going to lead us to the deepest happiness. There are many people in the world who are materially very well off and are not very happy, it has many other factors besides that. And so, you know, that's kind of one example of a way that we can approach life incorrectly. So, But this is often what we do, is that we have some kind of a strategy. If I could just get that thing, or if I could just get rid of this thing that I don't like, um, then I would be happy. And so with that idea in mind, we set in motion uh, a bunch of things in our life such as um, just to go through the sequence in a broad way, if we decide that what was going to make us happy is to have more status at work, if I could just get that promotion, then people would respect me and then I would be happy. And so what we do is we actually train through that belief, that idea, this is what I need to be happy, we actually train our... Uh, consciousness to be aware of some things and not aware of other things. Uh, a simple example of this phenomenon not, uh, is that uh, if you get interested in chess, for example, you'll suddenly start noticing chess references in language that we have anyway, like checkmates, things like that. Or you'll start looking and you go by a store window that has a chess set in it. You see it, and you know your friend didn't see it at all. That's not very interesting to them. So we attune our consciousness to what we care about. So if what we care about is getting that promotion or getting a lot of comfort in our life, we actually attune our consciousness of what we're aware of to relate to that. Um, Then you get susceptible to all those billboards that promise you a a really exciting life if you buy a certain product. Maybe you get attuned to that because you think having something is going to help you. And then because of that, um, we filter uh, what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, it all gets filtered by that belief that's not even really uh, known to us. And so things that we encounter are then kind of judged on that basis. And we decide that um, things that come up that seem to be supporting are getting that promotion. We're excited about. They're interesting to us. They make us happy. We find them pleasant. Whereas the same thing might not be pleasant if we didn't have that goal. Necessarily it may not be unpleasant, but, you know, let, let's say that somebody who might have influence on whether or not we get the promotion tells us one morning that, that they like our pretty new red sweater. And that might just be a sort of a fleeting, pleasant moment or even sort of a neutral moment like, you know, I don't know, I don't care if people compliment me on my clothes. And so, but if we want that promotion, that comment has big importance. Ah, <gasps> they noticed me. Oh great! Maybe I'm starting to get their favor, and so you know, little thoughts creep in. So that experience is different because we have this aim, and so then we get, start getting wrapped up in it, and we start um, deciding, we start kind of craving that certain things happen. We figure out, oh, if, if I can get in, if I can get invited to that conference then that'll look really good for me. And then I'll be able to put that on my next um, annual review, and I'll, I'll put it as a goal that I succeeded, and that's going to make me look better for the promotion. So then you really want to get invited to that conference, and you have a lot of stress around whether you're going to get chosen, and you cling to the idea of this has to happen. And then if it does, you're elated, and if it doesn't, you're depressed. And pretty much you're just suffering at that point. Mm. You know, that's not a very pleasant existence. And so you, to complete the image that the Buddha offers, you take birth as the person who needs to have that promotion. And you're born into that identity, that world. You live and die through that world. So essentially you've created a big suffering self. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it has some result. You get it or you don't. And things go on. So that was maybe a little bit of a dramatic example. I don't know if we literally identify with that one, but... Who doesn't in some way? We all want to look good. We want to look good, right? We want to look good, we want to feel good as people. That's kind of what we want. And so the Buddha says, this is um, the usual way. And it's a cycle, because we're going to create it again and again. This is called samsara, the wheel of existence. Interestingly, the wheel of existence is also called the wheel of time. And it's often depicted as a um, I don't know if you've seen these Tibetan images of the wheel of samsara, but it's in the mouth of a god in the background. And there's this sort of big god, and you see his upper teeth on the top and his lower teeth on the bottom of this huge thing that has all these worlds in it that represents samsara. And the reason that he's biting it is that, first of all, that time eats everything. That's um, one of the images. And uh, this god is called Yama. And the other is that it's kind of that grabbing, you know, the the trying to grab the world and make it nourish us, in a way, is the process of samsara. Luckily, there's an alternative. And um, in these images, with Yama biting the wheel of samsara, there's usually an image of the Buddha, up in the corner. And the Buddha is said to be outside of time. And is he's kind of observing the whole process from a place that isn't affected by this time eating everything, and that's you know, that's nibbana. And so, you know, how do we kind of go from our regular human existence, which does involve a body and a personality and living in a world with a family and friends and a job and whatever we're doing, <laughs> you know, that doesn't stop. The Buddha still had a body and a personality and a world, but he was free. And so what's the path that uh, starts with this and ends with something more like what the Buddha experienced? And there's another set that interestingly also starts with suffering. So right where you are, there's the choice. We can meet it with ignorance, and that's what I described. Meet it with the wrong idea of how to solve it, and it doesn't solve it, it creates more suffering. Or we meet suffering, this is all the difference, we meet it with trust. Interestingly, that suffering, one of the conditions for trust is suffering. And we meet it with what? A trust that if we turn towards suffering, that will be helpful, as opposed to turning away, ignoring doing something else. But if we see suffering, we feel it, and we're willing to orient toward it, we have some confidence that something different can happen than just going down that loop again. It's a very small change. It's actually just the change of thought between how can I get rid of this to there's another way. I don't know what it is maybe but I think there's another way. That's the very beginning of trust or confidence, which is the first step that takes us in a better direction from suffering. And interestingly, I'm now going to go through some of it describes a bunch of steps after this. What follows from just a little bit of trust Instant. Every time I talk about suffering that phone goes off. Okay. <laughs> I wanna turn it off actually. Because I don't
1: know what it's going on.
0: Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I've never done that. Very embarrassing.
1: Don't <I'm> suffering.
0: <laughs> Whenever there's suffering, there's something that comes in that tries to distract us and it's very important that we actually just turn toward it. And um, you know, and, and be with the suffering. And so that produces this confidence. There is a condition. It's not a cause necessarily, <coughs> but there is the possibility that there would be some confidence. And if you've practiced a little bit, you might have a sense of that. You know, it's like there's something here for me. Even if you didn't come to meditation with a specific thing, I'm gonna I'm suffering, I need to you know, but you sit and you realize there's something here for me. Something different happens when I have a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Something different happens when I start to sit. And so that is just a little glimmer of this is a good direction to go. And what arises from that, if if one is open to it, is kind of a sense of happiness or delight even of having a path. I've had moments where this, there was the suffering, and I, all that came to mind was, thank goodness I have a path. <laughs> you know, there's, I don't know how this is going to work out. This one looks difficult. But I do have some sense of, I've done this practice for a while. I've trained my mind to respond in certain ways. Thank goodness for that. You know, thank goodness for that beginning. And so, tuning in to that small amount of delight or happiness that there, or joy, that there is a path. So there can be a feeling of, yes, yes, I remember. I'm remembering at this moment that I don't have to create more suffering. I'm going to walk in this direction. I'm going to look at the suffering. I'm going to do my practice. And so there's this natural joy that comes, even if there's still whatever was causing the (coughs) suffering is still there. There's a little bit of joy it's a little bit what I tried to emphasize in the instructions, is even if your body is hurting, and I know your body probably hurt at some point today, some discomfort, even if your mind is busy, or you're thinking you're worried about something in your life that's real, um, even so, there can be some ease in the body, and there can be some ease in the mind, just through the act of sitting and being with them. Not running around and trying to do a bunch of stuff, but I'm just going to come today, I'm going to meditate, and so it's okay to just to tune into that ease and use it as a basis uh, from which we live. <coughs> so this is part of the path, is that we have a, some confidence that there's another option, some joy arises, and then from that we actually can become calmer. You know, we realize we can, we can have that sense of suffering, <coughs> I'm going to go with my practice, There's even a feeling of relief or tranquility or ease comes from realizing that we've stepped in the correct direction. And so the next step is said to be calmness or tranquility, usually in the body. We actually relax when we realize that we have options and we're going to be able to meet this in some way. And from that arises happiness in the mind, genuine knowledge that... uh, that we're meeting the suffering in some way. Maybe there isn't even suffering anymore. And then the mind focuses and becomes concentrated, what it says. doesn't mean necessarily that you have a laser focus, but that the mind is collected. The word for con- that sometimes is listed as concentration is samadhi, which actually means uh, composure. It's the same as the English word composure. And so everything that comes with that, a mind that is unified in some way, and also directed, calm. That's the sense of samadhi. And a mind that is calm is able to see clearly. And so uh, as we experience this calm mind, we have the ability to see what is actually going on. This is called seeing things as they are. And in particular, we tend to notice that things are changing, so they're impermanent. We have a sense of this won't last forever, or it's just the nature of things to arise and pass. Um, It's all a process. I can see things flowing. I can see them moving. uh, And an awareness of what all that means. And we see that our tendency to get caught in wanting and not wanting pulling and pushing and grabbing, we see that all of that is not really worth it because there's a process anyway that's unfolding. And our kind of uh, overexcited or over-aversive um, response to that is just creating more agitation. And We have a calm mind that's able to see. We don't want to agitate it further. We see the agitation of getting so involved and wrapped up. Kind of the, It's the exact opposite of when we, on the other side of this, we did get all caught and wrapped up and you know, experience a lot of agitation. When we've taken this path through trust and joy and tranquility and concentration, we don't want to get involved. The mind actually sees, I don't want to get all wrapped up in this. I'll deal with it, but I, I'm not going um, to suffer for it. I don't need to grab on and identify with this. And there's actually kind of a fading away of any sense that we would want to get uh, all wrapped up into it and identified with it. And that is leads to liberation from that particular issue. It doesn't go away, but we're liberated from our grabbiness and the suffering that comes through it. So we experience non-clinging or nirvana. And there's a sense of knowing after we experience that, there's a sense of knowing that we have, and knowing that we are free of that particular uh, hook in the mind. We didn't get hooked. And so this process had a completely different result. It's the same suffering, but we meet it either with the wrong idea about how to fix it, and so getting all wrapped up by the end, and then, you know, identification and suffering. Or we meet the suffering with, there's a different possibility. There is the possibility that I could meet this and not get stuck on it. I see the hook. There's a way not to get stuck. Yes, I'm happy about that. I'm going to look clearly. I settle down. I look clearly. I see what's going on. I realize that I don't need to get hooked, and I experience freedom from that particular issue, and it can happen quickly, you know, in an instant. We choose not to grab on. We bite our tongue and don't make that comment. You did the whole cycle in one instant. (laughs) Or um, we work on something slowly but surely over the course of a whole lifetime, and there finally comes a moment, you know, a mental habit that we have, whether it's depression or uh, greed or something. Uh, envy, something that's poisoning our mind and that has been with us for a long time, that habit that we always have, impulsive anger, something. And after years and years of working with it, the mind lets go. We had to go through these steps over a long time. It doesn't really matter, the time scale. Time is a concept. So if it's short or if it's long. But there's the possibility that we can... Need suffering with the path. And that's, this encapsulates the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering, there's the understanding that it's caused, it can be caused by going down that path of fighting it and getting wrapped up. That's truths one and two. Truth number three is understanding that it can end. That's that confidence or trust step is moving us toward the third, it can end, then we experience what it does, and we understand that when we take that path, it's the fourth noble truth, take that path, we will get to the cessation of suffering. So it's our choice. How do we meet suffering? Do we meet it with ignorance, not being willing to meet it, or meeting it with the wrong idea of what will solve it, or do we meet it with confidence and the dharma, our dharma practice, mindfulness, and flowing more easily through the path that brings the mind right into the present moment, and realizes there's nothing to hold mm-hmm. on to, there's no point, point in being able to let go and handle it without the suffering. That's the choice that we have. And there was a time when the Buddha was asked... What do you teach? And he said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's pretty much what he taught. And there were many, many, many teachings within that, but it always is the same. There's a moment, there's the possibility of there being suffering, or there is actually something arising that's painful, and the mind chooses more suffering or the end of suffering. And it's a training, of course, to um, train the mind so that it has the confidence that in every situation it can turn and take that path that goes to nirvana instead of the path that goes through ignorance back to suffering. And it's kind of a snowball effect, is that we need, we need one example <laughs> where Letting go led us to freedom. We were able to let go in some sense. And then once we have that, you know, and I don't know what it was for you, (laughs) but then we come back and we say, maybe this could go again. We have that sense. And then the more we're able to find that path to the end of suffering, the more confidence we have, the more likely it is that we'll choose confidence instead of ignorance. When we meet with additional suffering. And we arrive at greater and greater surety that there is an end to Dukkha. There's the possibility that we don't need to to be, to be creating that, to be falling into that again and again. It's not always linear, in that uh, there can come you know, we can practice for a long time, 10, 20 years, and some dukkha comes from some direction that we haven't had a lot of training in. So we encounter, we encounter something that we didn't ever encounter before. At the very least, we encounter, we've been practicing for a while in our middle age, then we encounter old age. Nobody's ready for that till they get there. you have never did that before, so there may be fresh dukkha that comes in. (laughs) But the more times, the more practice you've had at doing this path that goes toward the the confidence that says, if I turn toward it, it's going to work out somehow. I'm going to be able to meet it somehow. We've developed that muscle. Then when this new dukkha comes in, yeah, we may suffer at first, taken by surprise, oops. Uh, But that habit is there. And we say, you know what, I'm still going to turn toward this. I don't know how to do this one, but we'll see. I mean, um, for me, I'm getting to the age where people have to take care of their parents. And I don't know how to do that, actually. I've never done that. Um, But I know other people that have and have managed that. Um, And it's not immediate for me. It's not like I'm expecting it soon, although you never know. But, you know, relatively soon. And so um, I wonder, you know, what's that going to be? It won't be the same for me as for the other people that i talked with and know about. But I have a lot of confidence that if I meet it, and, I, you know, when this thing begins to happen, I've already seen that they, uh, you know, they're not quite as mentally quick as they used to be. Um, not quite as physically able as they used to be. So I have a lot of confidence that my practice will be supportive, if that indeed is something that I need to step up to sometime soon. We don't know. And, of course, then there will be the moment for each of us when we know that we're going to die. And I don't know, I haven't done that one before either. (laughs) Um, Maybe I have, but I don't remember. (laughs) So... um, So that's one where definitely you know, you don't get to talk to people either who've been through it, although you know you can approximate, but uh, anyone who's been all the way through it, we have them available to us. So this is now the time, this is the time to practice and develop the confidence that even when the dukkha is new and I don't know what it is, I'm pretty sure that turning toward it and staying with the practices that I know is going to It's going to lead to the cessation, the liberation from that. I don't know how, I don't know what it looks like, but the confidence is there. So, how do we meet suffering from the very simple, the parking place that I wanted just got snatched from in front of me, or, you know, whatever it is, to something large that I I really don't know how to deal with. It's a big human thing in life, human life issue. Uh, How do we meet that? Do we meet it with ignorance and fighting against it and grabbing for things and so forth? Or do we meet it with the confidence that if I bring the Dharma, my fullest attention, my open heart, somehow it's going to work, even though I don't know how. So... That's the choice that we make as we navigate the inevitable ups and downs of life. And we find we find that the Buddha was pointing toward something real, toward an amazing possibility of liberation that you know, it goes beyond just coping. It's better than coping. It's really a deep letting go, a deep freedom from even the possibility of of dukkha. So, may we continue to flow toward ease and peace, starting with the confidence, the trust, that we can. And our practice will take us there. if there further questions or comments?
1: I have what um, you were saying about how you map or you, you notice know, particular things in life like chess and you start paying attention to certain things where you, uh, some other people won't even care. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like once you feel like you're in the path or like, some signs that indicate you you're kind of in that path? And so kind of, sometimes you're able to to continue going through life looking for those type of signs? Yeah,
0: you know, so do you feel like you've seen some signs? All or the felt time some signs. For me yeah, yeah. like
1: that, but I wonder if I'm tricking myself into seeing these signs now.
0: Oh After well if you are it's a wise it's part of genuine yourself. Yeah, If you are, it's a wise part of yourself. Oh,
1: well, thanks. <laughs> because it's, it's feeling very it's genuine, and this mm-hmm. coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence, but and that's something like I feel is part of an indication, or an affirmation. Okay, continue going this path. Mm-hmm. Keep going, like because no one can answer you sometimes these things. Like, you don't know. You don't even know how to find the answer. But these little signs can be like. An affirmation, a, a word that is repeated right after you, thinking about it. Just
0: yeah, when I um, <clears throat> when I went on my first retreat, my very first residential retreat, um, I signed up for it, and I I kind of wasn't too tuned into the whole Dharma process yet, and I um, I reacted a little bit to the price of the retreat. It was a little stretch for me at the time, Um, but I said, okay, I'm going to try this, and so I paid the fee and signed up, and I was ready to go, and just before I went on the retreat, I received in the mail um, a check for a speaking engagement that I had done that I had completely forgotten about, actually. I mean, I went to a conference, and I did a talk, and usually I I was used to going to conferences where, you know, you just contributed (laughs) if you wanted to. But this particular one, um, I had been invited, and there was a speaker fee for it, which I'd forgotten. And the check arrived just before I went on the retreat, and it was exactly the same amount as the retreat registration fee.
1: Yeah, that's, the, that's exactly what it happens.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, you know.
1: That gives you the confidence, like, oh my God. <laughs> wow, that's amazing.
0: So this, um, this process, where the mind picks out what it thinks it's interesting. When I described that, I was describing the cycle that leads toward suffering, because Mm -hmm. um, the Buddha picked it up in that case, but it's actually just a process of the mind. Um, And not all times that we're noticing stuff related to what we want is leading toward suffering, because we could want nirvana, for example. We could want freedom. We could want a path. We could want to find a teacher. And as soon as we tune the mind to something like that, then... um, the right things will start coming in. It's not every time the mind does that it leads to suffering. It's just if the mind does that out of ignorance, it will lead to suffering. Thanks. So, um, yeah. So we learn about how the mind
2: works. Yeah. So, one of the things I was kind of struck by, as you were saying, I guess as you're describing it, it sounds like uh is actually somewhat easy. When and I and I say that because in some ways it seems like um, that when people talk about it, it's like this far off <coughs> lofty goal that'll you know maybe if you're super lucky. Well, one actually, you know, they might say you know you pretty much got to die first before you have got to or that's the sense you get. Um,
0: we can hear it that way sometimes. Yeah, um, so nibbana is totally easy if there's no barriers. The challenge is to remove the barriers. <laughs> but the the depiction of this, you know, flowing through confidence, you know, to the naturalness of letting go, uh, it is meant to sound easy in a sense. In that, one of the analogies that's used is of a chicken sitting on her eggs, and it says that if the chicken sits on the eggs, it doesn't actually matter if the chicken wants the eggs to hatch. Whether the chicken wants them to hatch or not, they will, because it's natural that if the eggs were incubated properly, then they'll hatch. And so the good news is that whether or not you want to be liberated, if you follow the practices, you'll be liberated. (laughs) So it's kind of extra to want it, I guess, but we do anyway. Um, But the thing about... I mean, one aspect of Nibbana being outside of time is that it's, it's there all the time. It was never born, it, was, it won't die. So, in a sense, um, it's completely available. And it's available when, when we don't cling, when we don't have ignorance. And so it's not so much that we have to get something as we have to let go in order to see what's here and to experience it. Now there's no spiritual tradition that says you can do that without effort. We have so much that we're creating and putting in the way (laughs) that it takes a little effort to um, uh, to clear that out of the way in a sense. So you can think of it as something that needs to be developed That's one way to think about it, is that the mind is not in a state where it's able to open to nirvana and we have to develop certain things. Strength of heart, strength of attention, uh, strength of concentration, things like that. And then it becomes possible. And that's kind of true. But it could also say that the only thing standing between us and Nirvana is a bunch of stuff that we've put in the way, and so all we have to do is clear that out of the way. That takes effort too. And then nibana mm-hmm. is right there. I kind of like that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times in which, you know, the, these are both views. There's no view. There's no view or model that's absolutely true. The only thing that's absolutely true is this, <laughs> is what's happening. On um, any model I create of it, or a chart like I talked about, talked through today isn't quite real, it's always a representation and so the question then is not whether it's true or not true, it's whether it's useful or not useful so if you find it useful to think of nibbana as something that you have to climb the mountain to get, please use that and there are times when it feels like that and for certain things that we have to surmount um, maybe that's an okay model if you prefer the model of it's right here and there's something I have to let go of in order to see it. Um, that's also useful. There are times when that's a really useful model. So uh, we, part of wisdom is to know how to see things. wise view. And so seeing even seeing our path uh, as evolving in a certain way or represented in a certain way in our mind, we can check whether that's useful. So is that answer useful for you at all? A little bit. A little bit. What would be more useful? <laughs> I missed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or, I guess, um, another question is, um, could you define nirvana as, like, the you know, the complete lack of craving slash dukkha?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. It's an absence. Yeah. Um, This is a subtle and important point, is that some people want Nibbana to be a thing that they get, or an experience that they have. But every experience arises and passes, doesn't it? Mm. So that can't be what Nibbana is, because it doesn't arise and pass. One of the great insights is that suffering arises and passes. It's part of something that ends. What we're looking for, though, is something that doesn't end. Doesn't begin. And what would that, how would we recognize that as a being in time? We couldn't recognize that. So, it's not what you think. Nirvana is not what you think. (laughs) Um, It's an absence. It's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's an absence of clinging. And so, one thing that's fruitful in practice is to begin to be able to experience absence, to know absence. It's not quite an experience, but we can know it. Do you hear the difference between those? You're welcome.
2: In uh, trying to... No absence or train in that way, is that uh, the same as, or do techniques where you try to note gone, or you try to note passing, mm-hmm. is that training for that, or is that a different thing? Yeah, that that's one? an aspect
0: of it, is to notice the endings of things. We're very good at seeing beginnings, and what we like to do is see the beginning of something and then move to the beginning of the next thing. We tend to see arisings, um, and we can either deliberately train in noting gone, I think that's a shenzhen yang uh, term, or noting cessation. So we can deliberately turn the mind toward that to kind of prime it in that direction. Or uh, it's also the case that, like the chicken sitting on the eggs, there naturally comes a phase in practice where endings become prominent, and you, you can't not see endings. So it will, um, it will come about anyway. So that's, yeah, that's one way. Another way is simply to notice particular qualities that may or may not be present. So just sitting, you could notice, oh, my mind does not actually have any hatred in it right now. Because no. we don't have hatred all the time. But we almost never notice that.
2: <laughs> Thich Nhat
0: Hanh says, have you noticed your non-toothache today? Did you notice? I don't know, maybe somebody here has a toothache, but did you notice that you don't have a toothache if you don't? We like to look at what's there. And we're so trained to look at what's there, we can't see the cessation side as easily. And so we might actually have to have to train a little bit in that. Or at least, what should I say, it helps. It helps prime the mind. Yeah. And I'm realizing we are a little over time, so folks need to go. But, um, so thank you. Thank you for your day of practice. Almost everyone stayed the whole day. That was lovely. So it was There are no distractions. It's okay.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.